Welcome everyone to today's devotion. Um, we are obviously um, not meeting live, uh, or at least in, in person, uh, the way we have been for the past several months. Uh, I think we, we did our uh, opening on Wednesdays around the time of uh, Memorial Day. So we've been meeting regularly on Wednesday nights uh, for several months now. Uh, but um, we're just taking appropriate precautions just in case. I don't think there's anything to worry about. Uh, but but uh, when it comes to COVID, we'd, we'd rather play it safe than, than sorry. So um, this shouldn't be a problem Sunday. If it is a problem, we'll, we'll be sure to let everybody know. But uh, the plan is this Sunday morning and Sunday evening, uh, everything to be, be back on track. But just for tonight, we wanted to take some precautions. And uh, I didn't want us to just not do anything. But given the um, gifts of uh, modern technology, we're able to still meet. Though I don't know who's who's joining us now, live or or later on podcast or or uh, YouTube, Facebook, uh, whatnot. But um, nevertheless, we're still able to open God's Word and to study it together. Uh, what we were going to do is to look at, uh, I believe, James the Less and Thomas uh, the, the, the Doubter, you know. Um, but I, I thought that since we're doing this online, I thought we would uh, keep it a little simpler. Uh, look at a disciple that we all recognize um, and keep it to that one disciple. Uh, so I actually want to skip to to uh, the end where, where we were going to finish, and that is the disciple Judas Iscariot. Uh, Judas is, of course, most famous for um, his uh, betraying of Jesus. I was thinking that if you were to write down a list of some of the most hated villains of all the world, who would they be? Well, in terms of tyrants, I think the average American would say people like uh, Hitler or Stalin or uh, Mao Zedong or Pol Pot or you know some some, some of these. Um, or maybe Osama bin Laden, just, just stuff like that. Uh, these, these would be political tyrants and terrorists. Uh, if we were to speak of thinkers, who were some of the more evil thinkers whose ideas had uh, severe consequence, I would add a Karl Marx up there. I know not everyone would agree with me, um, but uh, I, I think Marxism uh, led to the murder of, uh, um, of uh, millions of people, over 100 million people died tragically first half of the 20th century because of Marx's ideas. Um, and uh, I would add people like Margaret Sanger, whose uh, um, birth control movement led to abortion, uh, uh, practice eugenics, racist eugenics at that, and among other things. Um, but if you were to read Dante's Inferno, one of the more influential works uh, in Western civilization, it's pretty influential in theology. It's not a work of theology, but um, it's it's uh, Dante takes a trip down hell. It's a work of poetry, um, and uh, his vision of hell, most of it outside of the biblical text, um, and heavily influenced by his Catholicism, uh, probably shapes the average person's thinking of hell more than any other work. Nevertheless, Dante is you know describes hell as a series of of different levels, and at the at the, the lowest level of hell is where the worst people are, and there we find uh, three people of note: Brutus, Cassius, and Judas. Now, they all have one thing in common, and that is the act of treachery. Brutus and Cassius, of course. Um, betrayed Julius Caesar leading to his death. Judas betrayed Jesus leading to his death. Because to Dante, there was 
uh, no worse sin than that of uh, treachery. And so for Dante, though, the worst people in the world weren't, weren't, weren't the tyrants, it weren't, weren't people like that. It was actually that of, of uh, these three gentlemen and, and, and people like them who commit treachery. Well, no doubt, Judas is most famous uh, for betraying Jesus. And when you read the Gospels, little is said of him outside of that singular act. So even when he does appear, he's often said, Judas said this, the guy who's going to betray Jesus. So if you read through the Gospels and, and you know nothing about Jesus, you know nothing about his story, you don't know about where the story's going, the Gospel writers spoil the ending by telling you Judas is going to betray Jesus. I mean, they, they go out of their way so that you know this is a bad person. But with the other disciples, as flawed as they are, uh, do not get the same treatment, of course. Well, uh, let's start with some basic information about Judas Iscariot. First of all, uh, it, whenever the uh, New Testament provides a list of the 12 disciples, it does this in the Synoptic Gospels and it does it again in Acts. Uh, Judas is always mentioned last. So Peter is always first. Remember that we've, we've talked about the four categories of the disciples, uh, or three, I think it is. Um, Ju uh, Peter is always first uh, in his, Andrew's always first in his, and so on. Well, um, um, Judas is always the last one mentioned. Uh, there is no one after him. He is put on the tail end of this. And typically, the, the, the gospel writer, the evangelist, wants you to know when they write in Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Jesus. Again, wanting to emphasize that. I like how MacArthur summarizes this. He says, The other eleven apostles are all great encouragements to us because they exemplify how common people with typical failings can be used by God in uncommon, remarkable ways. Judas, on the other hand, stands as a warning about the evil potential of spiritual carelessness, squandered opportunity, sinful lusts, and hardness of the heart. Here was a man who drew as close to the Savior as it is humanly possible to be. He enjoyed every privilege Christ affords. He was intimately familiar with everything Jesus taught, yet he remained in unbelief and went into a hopeless eternity. Um, I do believe, and I lean towards MacArthur, I think the Bible is pretty harsh on Judas, and so I think we have to conclude that he never embraced saving faith. Um, and so he stands in judgment now. Um, and as we go through, I think we'll see some of these themes. Judas is compared to Satan. Um, and then, of course, as we'll see, his execution is um, poetic justice if you are a... Um, um, if, if, if you are a Jew. We'll, we'll talk about that. It's striking that uh, Judas' calling to the Twelve is never given. He just appears in the list, and eventually he appears as a sort of villain. His name is significant. Um, the name Judas is a very common name at this time. It, it's taken from the Hebrew Judah, which is one of the tribes of Israel. Jesus was from the tribe of Judah. So Judah was the son of Jacob. Um, and there are at least three Judases in, in the New Testament. I just spent a lot of time tracking them all down, but I found three pretty easily. Uh, two of them are among the 12 disciples. So uh, there's Thaddeus, who in John, I think it's John... 14 is called a Judas not Iscariot, right? So so there's Judas Iscariot, right? His name is legendary. And then 
Thaddeus, who one of his names is Judah or Judas, um, the, the John wants you to know, look, this is not that guy, right? Um, and so he's known for who he isn't as much as he is known for who, who he is. But we'll look at Thaddeus in a few weeks. Um, then there's one more that I think will surprise people, and that is Jesus's half-brother. His, his name, Judas. Now, he's called Judas in the Gospels, but the book he wrote in the New Testament is simply called Jude. And I think that is because um, if we had a book of the Bible called Judas, um, people may get the wrong idea. Uh, but if you read Jude, it's a wonderful book. I love Jude. Uh, it, it may be worth uh, our salt to really walk through it slowly. It's only one chapter long. It's the book before Revelation in, in our order of the books of the Bible. So Judah um, means um, Yahweh leads or the Lord leads, which is ironic because the story of Judas is that he was led not by the Lord, literally, as he, he is there with Jesus, but rather he's in, he ends up being led by Satan. So the name is quite ironic. Well, uh, Iscariot means man of Kirioth. Um, this is uh, similar to referring to Jesus as Jesus of Nazareth. So, so at this time, because uh, names are very common, you didn't have um, Apple and Banjo. I saw another one from a celebrity today that, I don't know, it just, what are we doing? I mean, what, what are we doing? Um, but there were a lot of Judas or Judases around. So to differentiate all the Judases, like you do the Simons and the Marys, you could refer to them by their family name. Um, you could refer to them by their uh, uh, vocation. Um, you may refer to them by nickname. Um, or you may refer to them by their hometown, Jesus of Nazareth. Or in this case, uh, Judas Iscariot. Well, um, well, related to that, being that he is from Kerioth, Iscarioth, um, it's likely he's from a town called Kerioth Hezron, which was in South Judea, which means um, Judas is the only of the, the 12 disciples that is not from Galilee. But given that we don't know the, the context of his calling, we, we don't know how he, he came into uh, the, the 12 disciples, but he's the only one that ain't from around here. Well, his family, we, we don't know much about his family. We, we do know that um, he is the son of Simon Iscariot. John tells us that in John 6. But beyond that, we know nothing else about his background. We, we just don't know. The Bible doesn't tell. You can get all kinds of crazy stories in um, early church legends. But, but in terms of what we can know, there really isn't a whole lot. With that said, however, although Judas was a geographical outsider... He was never treated as one and seems to have fit well within and among the disciples. After all, we discover in John 12, verse 6, we'll, we'll be looking at John 12 here in a second. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to John chapter 12. We discovered that um, he was trusted with the bank account, with the checkbook. He was the treasurer. Right? Um, and so clearly he, he had some influence with, within the uh, 12 disciples. They didn't give it to Matthew, the tax collector. They didn't give it to, to Peter, the leader. They gave it to Judas Iscariot. So, so he clearly had an important role within and was trusted by the 12 disciples. When Jesus claimed that one of them was going to betray them, no one stood up and said, well, guys, isn't it obvious who this is going to be? It's Judas. Look at him. He looks like a scoundrel, right? In every painting, in every movie, they get the ugliest guy that is 
only missing horns to look like Satan, right? They, they, they make him look like Jafar from Aladdin, right? I mean, but, but th- that's not the case. He, he was one of the boys, and he was treated as one of the boys and trusted as one of the boys. However, Jesus knew what was in Judas's heart. John chapter 6, verse 64, it says, For Jesus knew from the beginning those who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. Again, this is evidence that Judas never possessed saving faith. Whatever it is he was looking for in Jesus, and, and, and people have all kinds of wild ideas in that regard. Regardless, he never had saving faith in Jesus. Well, I want to look at two passages this evening. The first is in John chapter 12. John 12. I just want to look at the first four verses, uh, mostly for the sake of time. Um, but this was really the one of the few times Judas speaks outside of the betrayal and, and the events around that. So, so the, the Gospels want to emphasize that, that Judas, you know, leaves the Lord's Supper and all that stuff. By the way, let me just add, I believe this is right. I'm, I'm practically certain that Judas leaves and is encouraged to leave to carry out the betrayal and the rest of Jesus prior to Jesus instituting the Lord's Supper, which is the true genesis of why we, when we do the Lord's Supper, we, we evaluate our own hearts so that if we are living in open, unrepentant sin, we let the cup pass. Because well, that's what Jesus did. The one who was living in unrepentant sin and did not possess saving faith exits the story, and then Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. Well, let's look at John chapter 12 at the anointing. Um, here we have the story of Mary anointing the feet of Jesus. Now, in the synoptic gospels that include this story, um, this woman is is unnamed. We just know of, of a woman with the al- alabaster jar. But in John's gospel, uh, we know exactly who it is. It's Mary. Now, Mary and Martha play a different role in, in the synoptics. Uh, one is a busybody, and, and the other is, is worshiping. But, but in John's gospel, they play a, an important role of Jesus' ministry uh, in Bethany. Uh, and in fact, it is Mary and Martha's brother, Lazarus, that is raised from the dead in chapter 11. And in John's gospel, that event is the catalyst that culminates in the crucifixion of Jesus. So it tells us in John chapter 11, people wanted Jesus to die and Lazarus because they couldn't contradict what it is Jesus did in Bethany in raising Lazarus from the dead. And so we get this contrast. The religious elites and the critics want to get rid of Jesus, but those who have come to Jesus, who's the resurrection and life, they respond in worship to Jesus. So we get this beautiful scene in John chapter 12. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead, chapter 11. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. So just pause there for a minute. This expensive ointment, we, we discover later on when Judah shows up, but, but we already know it costs about a year's wage. Now, now men, I'm sure you, you marry guys, you have, uh, you've bought your wife some expensive perfume. And chances are her favorite perfume is, is perfume that you think maybe costs too much. I don't know. But you get it, right? For her anniversary, Christmas, birthday, Mother's Day, whichever 
holiday that the card companies made up uh, that I've, I've not mentioned. I'm sure you've got it before. Now, would you buy a year, a, a, a perfume that is equal to a year's salary? No. No, I mean, imagine going into the, the bank and saying, uh, Mr. Bankman, I need, uh, let's just say, $50,000. And, and he asks, well, what are you going to use this $50,000 for? He says, well, Amazon has uh, my wife's favorite perfume, and I'm going to get it for her. All right. um, that is a story that will probably end up in that guy's future book deal. Right. Uh, um, I mean, we, we don't do this. Oh, the reason is because perfume has a different purpose today. In, in the ancient world, uh, this sort of perfume um, was for the purpose of anointing a body. The Jews took, uh, uh, were very careful with how they treated the body. Uh, this is a robust pro-life worldview from, from womb to, to the tomb. So, so the body will be anointed. Yes, because of the stench and all that sort of stuff. But this would have been really a priceless um, um, gift that, that they would have. And because of its cost... You wouldn't use it all at once. You would use small amounts of it at a time. Uh, but Mary here is dumping the entire thing to anoint Jesus' feet. Not just his, his entire body, but John wants to emphasize she will anoint his feet. Now, now, part of the reason is because what happens in the next chapter. In chapter 13... Everyone's feet is dirty because you're, you're, you're walking in sandals in the Middle Eastern mud and dirt, right? Um, and, and if you've ever been in that sort of third world country, you've, you've experienced that. When I was in Niger, Africa, um, we all took showers when we got back, not because we were sweaty, but because of our feet. If we only washed our feet, we felt clean. Um, but in chapter 13, here are the disciples and here's Jesus and their feet are dirty. And what does Jesus do? He takes the role of Mary here, not to worship the disciples, but to serve. The one who is worthy of worship stoops down to, to wash their feet. So chapter 12 is a beautiful scene of worship where Mary is, is washing Jesus' feet, but not just washing. She is anointing him. She is covering him with the best that she has. So we see here that worship is more than a ritual we do on a Sunday morning online or in person at this point, but rather it involves bringing something to surrender. Worship should be costly to us. We are giving up something in worship. Right? So so this is a, in a beautiful scene, an important one, and Jesus understands the theological significance of it. He explains that Mary is preparing him for burial, which means that this is leading to death. This is purposeful. It is necessary. And we would say that we as Christians cannot separate proper worship from a proper understanding of the cross. We worship a Savior who died in our place and for our sins. Well, verse 4, Judas speaks, right? So Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him. There it is. You know, in case you forgot, we're going to have that footnote there. He said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? So, um, remember, Judas is the treasurer. Now he's throwing a fit. Um, now, this makes sense, right? If you're the treasurer, you're the one watching the checking account. You're saying, guys, I think things are getting out of hand with our spending. We need to stop. But what we see here is that Judas's heart is misplaced. Notice he suggests Social justice should trump worship. That is to say, giving to the poor trumps acknowledging and worshiping the Savior of the poor. 
More than that, Judas's uh, motivation for justice is hypocritical. He doesn't really care about the poor. He cares about his own poverty. So he wants to sell this for 300 an area, a year's wage. But he's not going to write that check to, to give it to the homeless. But rather, he, he, he will keep it for interest or profit it himself. Now, this scene is significant in the development of Judas. Although he's always been a background character until the betrayal, we see the unfolding of his disillusionment. A lot of people, when it comes to Judas, they, they, they want to spend their time engaging his disillusion, this disillusionment. Why did Judas do this? And there's all kinds of theories, and none of them are taken directly from the Bible. There may be some inference, but none of them are clear. Perhaps the most prominent is that Judas wanted to force Jesus' hand um, because he wanted Jesus to be this political revolutionary. Remember that that political revolution was every you know popping up everywhere at this time, and, and it will eventually lead to the destruction of the temple in AD 70. Uh, and then even after that, there are still these messianic figures uh, who are virtually all political. But Jesus isn't political in that sense. So one theory is that Judas is trying to force his hand. Or maybe Judas was frankly tired of, of you know, he's given his life to this man um, and can't believe what it is he is seeing and hearing. Um, in that Jesus is speaking of peace. Jesus is speaking of laying his life down rather than taking on the Roman system. Well, Matthew suggests it was shortly after this event that Judas then went to the religious elites and bargained with them that he would betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Now, a couple of things to note there. One, we go from 300 denarii to 30 pieces of silver. In fact, we see in Exodus that 30 pieces of silver is the price of a slave. To Judas... And to those who hired Judas, Jesus isn't worth more than a slave. It's tragic what it is we have here. So in the singular scene, Christ is anointed with both overwhelming love by Mary and with overwhelming hate by Judas. It's an incredible scene that we have here. Well, with that, let's turn to Matthew chapter 27. So let's go back in our Bible. Matthew 27. And let's look at um, his, his suicide. Now, I'm going to assume you are familiar with the actual act of betrayal. Right? He, he shows up in the garden. Uh, Jesus has been pouring his heart out um, in Gethsemane. Uh, and there we see one entering the garden. Um, and so, so the parallels between the Garden of Eden and, and the Garden of Gethsemane are, are there. Um, so one who is... Um, dwelt with the Satan, right, is much like the uh, serpent, right? Judas becomes a type of serpent here. And so now we have another fall story. Uh, the son of Adam uh, that will crush the head of the serpent uh, is being bruised right here by the serpent. Well, uh, I trust you're familiar with that story. He kisses Jesus. That was a, a, a common way of greeting, given how dark it was at night. Uh, this greeting would have been the signal necessary. Uh, for them, and they come and they, they arrest Jesus. Well, I trust you're familiar with that, and you know where the story goes. What I want to do is actually spend time at the um, the exec or the suicide of of Jesus. Um, 
Let's start with chapter 27, verse 1. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death, and they bound him and led, away, led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Uh, so he's had his first trial, the religious trial. Now he's going to have a civic trial. Now notice what Matthew does. If, if you So we read verses 1 and 2. If you were to skip down to verse 11, the civic trial happens. Now, this is important. In order for us to understand what Matthew is doing here, this is why when we read the Bible, read the Bible as intended by the authors, right? not as vacation Bible school stories or whatever. Right? So in the first two verses, we get Jesus is on his way to, to, for a civic trial. Then it gets interrupted with the suicide of Judas. But then you go down to verse 11, and it picks up with the civic trial. So if you have verses 1 to 2, and then verse 11 and following, that, that flows as a single, single narrative. But it's interrupted with the Judas narrative. Now, that happens throughout the Bible. happens all the time. We've seen it some in our uh, David series. We see it throughout the Bible. The Gospels do it all the time. And they do it on purpose. Let me give you another example of this. Uh, Jesus... Um, is asked by uh, Jairus to, to come heal his daughter. So he's marching on the way down there. Well, in the middle of that, we get the story of the woman who has the issue of blood. She's healed. And the narrative gets interrupted by that. Only be picked up with Jesus healing Jairus' daughter. Now, why, why do we have that? Well, we're to see the connection between the narratives. So we are to, in the interrupting the narrative, we are to say something significant is happening here. What is it? Right? So, so let's read the suicide of Judas and see what we can come up with. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, What is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priests, taking the pieces of silver, said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury, since it is blood money. So they took counsel and brought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then it was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, they took the, they, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by the some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Now what do we do with this? Well, Matthew is doing more than just telling us what happened to Judas. Because outside of a brief reference in Acts chapter 1, Judas just, he betrays Jesus and he leaves the scene. It's like if you're reading Mark, Judas's only role in the gospel of Mark is to betray Jesus. That's really all he does in Mark's gospel. And he doesn't really do much more in Luke's gospel. It is Matthew who fills in the details. Now, uh, again, there's a reference in Acts. Um, I don't think they're contradictory. I, I just don't think it's worth our exploration here this evening. Um, so what do we do? What is Matthew doing with the suicide of Jesus? Well, what we need to see is that he is using the literary uh, art of juxtaposition. So Judas fits at this point in the narrative because Matthew is trying to say, okay, you've seen this, now see this. You've seen this, now look at this. And this is to help the reader to better understand what is happening in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Let me give you, I think i got three examples for you here. First of all, it's the juxtaposition of innocence. In chapter 27, all the enemies of Jesus confess that Jesus is innocent. 
Okay? There's a big emphasis in chapter 27. You can't miss it when you read it. In verse 4, Judas confesses Jesus is innocent. I've betrayed innocent blood. So he, he throws the, the coins um, back at the religious elites. Verse 6, the religious elite confess his innocence. Uh, verse 18, and then down to verse 23 and 24, Pilate confesses his innocence. Uh, I, I am innocent of this man's blood, right? Uh, verse 19, Pilate's wife confesses uh, Jesus' innocence. Don't have anything to do with that guy. He's an innocent man. In verse 54, the centurion confesses his innocence. Surely this was the Son of God. So, But Judas, the one who betrayed Jesus, knows he betrayed an innocent man. And the religious elites describe the 30 pieces of silver as blood money. So we see that they get that they that Jesus is innocent. Now, they don't care that he's innocent. Judas has a moment of conscience where he does care that he's betrayed innocent blood. But whether or not you care if someone is innocent doesn't matter because you are still confessing and recognizing that he is innocent. This is a big theme in chapter 27. So theologians refer to this as the impeccability of Christ. That is to say that uh, Scripture was like us in every way, yet without sin. And so Jesus is the perfect spotless lamb. Now think about it. If, if, if you're an early reader of the Gospels, particularly uh, a Jewish reader, as Matthew's readers primarily were, it's the most Jewish of the four Gospels, um, you're hearing the story of Jesus and you're saying, okay, you want me to believe that a criminal condemned by religious and civic court is the Messiah. Immediately, you're, you're not sold on it. So what the gospel writers show us is that Jesus wasn't just innocent in character, but even those who played a part in his execution state that Jesus is innocent. So Judas is the beginning of, of a series of declarations of innocence from the characters of chapter 27. Well, the second juxtaposition is between two sinners. A juxtaposition between two sinners. Now, notice how chapter 26 ends. We won't take the time to read it. But chapter 26, verse uh, 69 to 75, ends with the denial of Peter. Okay? So, he, he, he gets scared around a little girl, starts telling people he don't know who Jesus is. Okay? So, what do we have here? Remember that Peter is told... One of you will betray me. And Peter said, well, it can't be me. These guys will leave you, but I would never leave you. And Jesus leans in and says, look, you think you're righteous? You're no, no better than anyone else. In fact, you're going to be the one who repeatedly deny me. Here's the sign. The, the rooster will crow early in the morning. So what we get then is righteous Peter denying Jesus and unrighteous Judas betraying Jesus. And, 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 and Matthew puts them right before us, juxtaposes them right in the narrative. They're right next to each other. Peter denies and then, and then oh, by the way, it's the civic trials next. Oh, before we get there, let me tell you what happened to Judas. Here you have before you two great sinners. What sets them apart isn't the treachery they committed against Christ but their understanding of repentance. This is one of those passages where I think the King James gets it really wrong. I don't say that often, but I think the King James Version gets this really wrong because it says in verse 3, um, 
Judas, his betrayal, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver. The King James, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, uses the word repent. What Judas does here is not repentance. It is simple remorse. We've been talking about this some in the story of David and Saul uh, on Sunday mornings, but there is a massive difference between repentance and remorse. Remorse may lead to repentance, but remorse isn't repentance. Much the same way that forgiveness isn't reconciliation, but it, it will lead to reconciliation, but they're not the same thing. Notice at the end of chapter 26, Peter remembered the saying of Jesus before the rooster crows you deny me three times, and he went out and wept bitterly. What did Judas do? He recognizes an innocent man is being condemned and will be crucified. What does he do? He feels sorry and goes and commits suicide. Self-harm is not repentance. It may be guilt, it may be sorrow, but it isn't repentance. In fact, notice that Judas seeks redemption He seeks restitution, but where does he go? He goes back to the law. I've betrayed innocent blood. Take this money back from me, but give me grace. And what does he discover? Grace is not a concept with legalists. Having committed sin, he will forever be a sinner. And what hope is there for the sinner in that system? That's why you've heard me say, and it's not original with me, religion will always lead us down one of two paths, either pride or despair. Pride is is what you get in religious elites where they think they are righteous, they are good enough, and they're better than other people. But then Judas chooses the path of despair. If there is no hope for me, what is the point? What is the point? So he grabs a rope, throws it over a tree, and dies. What he gets wrong is repentance. Repentance is the flip side of faith. It is faith in action. The gospel is more than just what we think that is faith about Jesus, but is also what we do in submission to Jesus. Peter's sin remorse led him to repentance. Judas's remorse led him to the law, which took him down a path of a hangman's noose. One other juxtaposition to, to point out here, and that is the juxtaposition between two deaths. I find this part really fascinating. Um, the Mosaic Law says that false witnesses must suffer the punishment um, of the one that you were bearing false witness for. So, um, let's say, um, you know, the punishment for stealing is you get your arm chopped off. Okay, let's, let's just do that, just for fun. Kicks and giggles. Well, if you're a false witness saying, I saw Bob steal um, the boy's bike, right? And the punishment is chopping off the arm. And it, you come to find out you're a false witness, you have to suffer the punishment that Bob would have suffered for. But I think this this is... We should do this, right? I mean, I mean, uh, we we should do this. Um, and uh, so Deuteronomy 19, the judges shall investigate thoroughly, and if the witness is a false witness, he has accused his brother falsely, you shall do to him just as he intended to do to his brother, that you shall purge the evil from among you, right? So if you if you charge someone with a capital crime, 
you yourself will be executed. But what if you betray an innocent man and he is condemned of a capital crime? Perhaps that is why Judas chooses death. The punishment for what he has done as a false witness, he's betrayed innocent blood, an innocent man, is, he may surmise, death itself. But even with that, why does Judas hang himself? Why? Why that form of punishment? I think we again can go back to the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 21, cursed is anyone who hangs from a tree. So if Judas feels like he must pay the price for what he's done. That's justice. And the price is death, his own death, okay? But what kind of death? Well, those who are cursed are ones who hang from a tree. So, makes sense. Grab a rope and die on a tree. Uh, so Jesus, sinking, or Judas rather, sinking in the guilt, makes himself a curse by hanging himself on a tree. Now, now, I'm willing to bet some of you know exactly where this is going. This is what the New Testament does with the death of Jesus. Now, I said that this scene is all about juxtaposition. Think about it. It opens with the death, the death of Judas. It ends with the death, the death of Jesus. And they both die upon a tree. Isn't that fantastic? But not only that, they both die as curses. In fact, this is a major theological point in the New Testament about the crucifixion. The one of the ways that the uh, New Testament goes about doing this is it'll say Jesus it, it will say Jesus was crucified. It will say that. But it'll go out of its way to say that Jesus died on a tree specifically. Let me give you a few references. Acts 5:30, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus whom you had put to death by hanging him on a the Greek says tree. We translate it cross. But the Greek word is tree. Uh, Acts 10 39, we are witnesses of all things he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They also put him to death by hanging him on a tree. Again, we translate cross, but the Greek word is tree. Acts 13, when they had carried out all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. 1 Peter 2 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live the righteous. We talked about this recently in, in our daily devotions. Galatians 3 is most significant. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, right? So if the law is a curse, uh, in that it, it lays a curse upon you because you can't be set free from it, uh, there is no redemption in legalism. Well, Paul says, look, Christ has redeemed us from that curse. How? By becoming a curse for us. How did Christ become a curse for us? He tells us, cursed is everyone who hangs from a tree. So, so to the Jews would say, wait, 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 wait. You want me to worship a guy who is cursed of God? And the first Christians, and we to this day say, exactly. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. He who is the blessing of God became the cursing of God because we, though cursed by the law, am redeemed because he became the curse for us. This is the beauty of substitution. And so what we have in the scene is a juxtaposition between two, two deaths. A guilty man dies because he betrayed the innocent. Then we get the story of an innocent man, innocent man who dies for the guilty. 
is the beauty of the gospel. Isn't it? So in the story of Judas, we are not just to see the means by which Christ was crucified. We are to see the meaning of the cross itself. Isn't that wonderful? As tragic and evil as it was, God took chaos, and as he did in creation, he brought order. God took the ugliness of man, and he brought the beauty of redemption. Well, can I just, in conclusion, offer uh, two points of application real briefly with Judas. The first is, faith is not the same as ritual. Let's be honest, Judas had a better church track record than you and I do. He was there every Sunday, every Wednesday, every day of the week, right there with Jesus. He slept in the same tents, walked the same roads. He heard all the sermons. Merely being present is not the same thing as faith. You can go through the motions of religion and be just as damned as those who couldn't care less. Ritual does not mean faith. Judas is one who had gone through the rituals. He had heard the sermons. He had done all that. But he never possessed saving faith. Let that be a warning to all of us. Faith is what saves, not religion. The second thing I think we can see here, love includes the unlovable. It is striking. If you put yourself in Jesus' shoes and you have all knowledge, you're omniscient, and you're calling the 12 disciples, you, you're down 11, and this is the symmetry of life. I don't know if he was or not. You think, all right, I got to get one more because of the symmetry with the trials of Israel. I know what I'm going to do. That guy right there is going to be the cause of my death. But I'm going to love him. I'm going to encourage him. I'm going to bless him. And I'm going to lead him. Even though I know he will reject it. He will reject me. And I will die because of it. And let's be honest. Many of us have a hard time loving people over petty things. We would do well to learn the love of Jesus who loves at this level. How much better would our world be right now our culture be right now, our churches be right now, if we lived with the sort of love Christ did for Judas. That doesn't justify what Judas does. It doesn't, um, it doesn't redeem Judas for what he did. But what it does say is that when Christ calls us to love, he really means it, and he really practiced it. May we learn that sort of agape love. Well, guys, I'm letting you out early, about 15 minutes early. You're welcome. Doesn't happen very often, um, but I, I, we we don't usually do prayer requests and stuff. Uh, whatever it's it, it's online, um, but uh, so that that saves us a little bit of time. Lord willing, Sunday morning uh, we will be here uh, for worship. Uh, Sunday school 8:45 worship at 10, and don't forget this Sunday evening is our trunk or treat. 
So be sure to bring candy. We're still collecting candy, um, and uh, we need all the candy we can get. We always run out. It's not a criticism. It's actually a, a, a praise every year that, that we want to reach as many people as we can. We want to be a blessing to as many people as we can. It has been, what was it, seven months of COVID. This is the first big event we've, we've really done, particularly as a, as a blessing to our, to our neighborhood. So um, um, come help us out. We need people to volunteer trunks. You can dress up if you want to. You don't have to dress up if you don't want to. Uh, but the main thing is we're gonna inter- interact with the people in our neighborhood. We've got things set up for social distancing. So if that's a concern, um, uh, we're taking proper steps. Uh, you can wear a mask or you know Halloween mask or, or a protective mask. Um, but come uh, spend time with us. Uh, those who register, uh, our guests who register uh, with us, they will be registered to enter uh, to win a $50 uh, gift card to Cracker Barrel for date night. Usually for, for these gifts, we, we include a movie, but we can't do that because of COVID, right? I don't even know if the movie theater is open, so we're just doing the, the dinner uh, card. But nevertheless, um, you can go shopping and, and eat, so that's the best we can do with COVID. But come and join us uh, Sunday morning for worship, Sunday night for, for outreach, um, and uh, as well as everything else we've got going on. Thank you for your patience. I'm sorry for the inconvenience, but Lord willing, we'll see you guys soon. See you then. Have a good one.